Welcome to Buildings and Beyond. The podcast that explores how we can create a more sustainable built environment. By focusing on efficiency, accessibility, and health. Hello, I'm Rob Baldrich. This episode, we're talking about energy codes. This is a roundtable episode. We had several people on, several colleagues here at Stephen Winter Associates, uh, Gayathri Vijaykumar, Carla Butterfield, Bill Zoller, and Dylan Martello. All of them, everyone but me, really has been involved in uh, code development on some level. Um, Gayathri and Carla both got into codes really by being involved in above code programs such as Energy Star. Gayathri is now a voting member on the committee developing the 2024 IECC. Carla has been involved with codes in Massachusetts, especially stretch codes, as has Dylan. Dylan has been involved in those codes, especially as they relate to Passive House. Dylan also recorded and edited this, so thanks for that. Uh, Bill has been involved uh, on the Connecticut Codes and Standards Committee since 2009. He was brought on as an energy efficiency expert. A few definitions, acronyms. We throw out ICC and IECC, International Code Council, and International Energy Conservation Code. Uh, and we also talk about EUI a fair bit, and people threw out some EUI numbers. EUI is energy use intensity, and the numbers uh, that people are referring to are thousands of BTUs per square foot per year. Usually I'm a stickler and call people on numbers without units, but I missed it a couple during this, <laughs> during this recording. Um, and that can either be site or source energy, which we also didn't didn't specify as clearly maybe as we could have. Site energy is energy used on site. Source energy includes extracting, processing, converting, delivering, uh, you know, before energy gets to the site. And also one note, we recorded this in June 2023 and a huge thunderstorm rolled through. We had to stop recording for 20 minutes while the thunder stopped. Dylan did a great job uh, editing, but you'll notice a little blip, maybe two thirds of the way through. Uh, I thought this was a really good conversation. I mean, we all have to deal with energy codes. This was really thought provoking for me. Uh, I don't know if we have any clear <laughs> answers. I don't know if we solved a lot of problems, but I really appreciated the discussion and my colleagues' perspectives on this. As we do with some of these roundtable episodes, everybody uh, brought a question or a topic that they thought would be interesting to dig into. And the first topic this time was from Bill Zoller. Energy codes are getting more complicated and convoluted, making compliance more difficult to implement and to confirm. How can they be made simpler and more effective? Is energy utilization intensity, EUI, per square foot of conditioned space, a viable alternative metric. Now, that, that's the, the premise, but the background is that each time we go through a code cycle change, each three years, things get added to the code. And the intent is to end up with a code that helps designers design better buildings and helps contractors build better buildings. And for the most part, that works. The problem is, is that it becomes very complicated, very convoluted. Um, you don't always have a clear path to victory. And in some instances, the prescriptive requirements, do R60 here, R40 there, et cetera, et cetera, really are not optimized for where the building might happen to be. But you know, 
climate zones are very, very large geographic areas. So you can't fine-tune it through those prescriptive requirements. There are, however, performance methods that also work uh, in which you can model a building uh, and come up with an ultimate uh, building performance and either a HERS uh, rating, a home energy rating service uh, value, or another comparable metric that is, that is allegedly quantifiable. Those metrics don't take into account very, very important things, such as the uh, configuration of the building, which I think is very important. If I'm going to design a building to be very energy efficient, um, among other things, it might have a very um, high floor area to wall area ratio, as an example. But if I take a poorly designed building from a configuration standpoint, when I use any of the current performance metrics, I'm comparing that same poorly configured building to itself. So I'm not getting credit for doing a effectively designed building geometry. So I think there's a better way. And ultimately, what we want to do is if I build a 2,000 square foot residence, let's say, I want it to use X amount of BTUs per square foot over the course of the year. That to me would be the ultimate performance metric and comparison vehicle. And that's where I'd like to see the code go. Instead of prescriptive, in addition to prescriptive, or instead of the current performance, or? Yeah, instead of the current performance, I think prescriptive has a place. And the prescriptive method should actually be more rigorous than the performance method, because if you're going to do prescriptive, it's like a shortcut anyway. Okay, I'll have to do extra insulation. My building has to be more tight. And the other thing I'll say is the one thing that the code is getting right now, the change that is, that is I think, the best change that's been made in a long time, is third-party compliance. Someone's got to do a blower door test. Someone's got to do duct blaster testing. Because if you don't go out and physically test that stuff and know where your building is, is performing, then, well, conversely, you don't know how your building is performing. It's, you know, verification, measurement and verification. It's critical. Is that in, like, if you go prescriptive, is that, that testing still required? It is now. Okay. The blower door test, yeah. yeah. Per IECC, and is that, is that getting enforced pretty consistently? It's, okay. Yeah, so I'll just jump in for a second. Sure. The 2021 IECC really closed the loop that used to be there. Um left to interpretation for an authority having jurisdiction. And so that's gone. And both commercial and residential buildings have to do some performance testing for air infiltration. You can't, okay. get, can't get out of it, All right. no matter what if, pathway. If states or areas have adopted 2021, you said? It is the 2021. Yes, okay. yes. correct. All right. And is that like a bill in Connecticut? What's the current state energy code based on? 2021. Connecticut is. Okay. is the first state in the nation to adopt it. <laughs> October of 2021, I think. Kudos. October of 2021, correct. All right. All right. Cool. So so the modeling pathway now, I mean, do do you does anybody have any idea how many people go prescriptive versus performance on energy codes this generally? Is, that's a question everybody would like answered. And so during the code development, we keep asking this question, but nobody tracks this data. So every jurisdiction, it would be a lot of work for them to keep a database of, you know, permits that come in and how many are prescriptive versus the two simulated path if we're talking about residential. So we ask this question a lot, but there isn't a central repository where jurisdictions are required to note that. So we don't know. It's all anecdotal. 
And so some people will say it's mostly prescriptive and They'll also say it's not the ERI path, that energy rating index path, which is in the residential code R406. People will just anecdotally say that's not being used at all. Um, and we can kind of confirm that through you know, the registry. So ResNet uh, has a registry of buildings that go through an energy rating process. And you can see that you know their scores aren't code compliant, but clearly they're built. So they're not using that ERI energy rating index path. So anecdotally, okay. we can kind of work backwards and say, People are getting Energy Star, people are getting HERS ratings, but they're not using it for code compliance because they're not meeting those targets. So they must be doing something else. So they could be using another simulation path or they could be doing prescriptive. And to your point before, prescriptive is hard. And basically, you know, a builder can choose to do prescriptive and fall back to a modeling path because it has a little bit more flexibility because it has different requirements because you have to perform better than the prescriptive path, right? The, the modeling pathway that Bill was talking about the reference home is the, you know, the 2021 ICC, let's say. And so you have some flexibility on how you perform better than that using a simulation software. So Bill mentioned the, you know, the efficient design, efficient form factors as being a way that that could be incentivized or, or you could get, you could get, you could take advantage of that. You can get if, credit for it. Yeah. If you went like a, an EUI path. Yes. I mean, is that... Other advantages or other thoughts? I mean, you. I mean, we've done so many HERS ratings for so many types of residential buildings, single family, multifamily. I mean, are there other? I mean, Carla, what are you, what are your thoughts on on EUI? Energy of, use intensity. Yeah, instead of ERI or right. HERS. So I think um, going down this pathway, Bill's right. Like we kind of have tapped out the percent better of an ASHRAE ninety point one model. Using a percent better isn't working anymore. So we need a realistic. And that's multifamily, pretty. That's pretty pretty much multifamily and commercial. Right, and com right, right. Right, right, yeah, yeah. Right, but, you know, we use the EUI, and again, energy use intensity, in case we didn't use say that. Um, we use an EUI across uh, multifamily low-rise as well. So it's, and that's in the residential. So three stories or less, you can use the residential portion of the code. Four stories and over is when the break happens and you go to commercial. But EUI is, everybody uses EUI when we're talking about um, comparing buildings. And one of the reasons that is because portfolio manager uses EUI. Uh. The problem with portfolio manager, as Bill mentioned, is it's, a, it's compared to what's around that building. And so this is just a really arbitrary benchmark. It's not really set in something that's helpful. So you mean portfolio portfolio manager? Portfolio is, manager is, is an arbitrary benchmark. Okay. And so is then the benchmark that we're using for modeling predictions. And and Dylan can jump in here, but we have had, you know, for multifamily building type, if the Energy Star EUI target or average is 59 or 56 EUI, I, I can't remember if that's right or if I'm mixing it up with More or less. the yeah, and then our modeling predictions for passive house level stuff is coming in around twenty nine ish. Um, we need to make sure that that fifty nine starts to make sense with where we're targeting our modeling predictions, because our actual predictions are so much more than our model predictions. Oh, the actual consumption. The actual consumption, sorry. Okay. Yeah, so actual EUI is so much higher than our modeled. So those numbers are site UI. Okay, those are site. Okay, yeah. okay. 
So I think um, building off of what Carla was saying, so Energy Star Portfolio Manager uses data on existing buildings to establish that benchmark, that energy use intensity that you were talking about in the 59s or whatever the number is. So it's based on actual building data, operation, you know, operational bill data. And so it is hard because the modeling assumptions that go into passive house models or ASHRAE 90.1 models, energy rating index, those models are just models. And so you're, it's apples and oranges, right? And so until the modeling protocols are, you know, updated to more accurately portray actual real buildings, you're always going to see a huge difference between those two models uh, or those two EUIs. Um, but back to Bill's point about the modeling protocols, introducing something like a credit for improved design, that's something you can do. But to your point about why the codes get more complicated over time, it's because somebody will have an idea like that, propose it to the codes, and then it gets into the codes. And it's a good idea. It serves a purpose. But that is also a reason that the codes start getting more complicated. Everybody's, everybody has a good idea, and they want it to be part of the code. So it incentivizes or encourages a certain practice. But you can't do that very simply. The book just gets longer and longer. And I hope this is where Bill says, every time you add a code change, you, ha- you should have to take one away. Yes, right? <laughs> that is correct. Exactly I right. I think that is a good solution. Yeah. See, it's complicated. And I, I was going <clears> to, <throat> I had a topic that I wanted to raise to this group, which was codes are complicated. How are building departments, building inspectors dealing with it? I was visiting a friend in Maine a few weeks ago. Not, not well, it's not rural at all for Maine, but rural by a lot of standards. And, and you know, their neighbors are built, built a new modular house. And I went around and I took a look, and this is Climate Zone 6. Nominally, Maine uses 2012 ICC, which requires two, you know, two by six wall insulation plus at least R5 of, you know, rigid insulation, continuous insulation. There's no rigid foam. It's, you can see out, you can see daylight through holes all through the basement. I mean, it's a, it's the kind of crap that I, got frustrated with 20 years ago and I, and his, my, another neighbor is a, is a builder and he was, I asked him about it. It's like, yeah, no rigid foam. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, I thought the code really said you had to do that. Oh yeah. That's what code says. It's like, well, but you don't really have to do it. No. (laughs) Well, you do performance path. It's like, you just laughed at me. It's just, you know, it's just, it's just as, as, and this is, I mean, Maine is weird. I mean, just having inspections <laughs> at all started started making around Mainer, two thousand. I take and, offense. And a lot of yeah. Well, you we can't didn't have a code it. up there for so long anyway, except electrical and plumbing. I think there really was no building code in Maine for years. Yeah, no, years. exactly, exactly. So that's a bit of an outlier, hopefully. But I mean, there's so much. I mean, I, my my impression is building inspectors, building departments are really focused on fire safety and structural, and all this energy stuff is kind of extra they've had to deal with it to some degree for going on 10 20 years but how how are they doing it and this is a crazy general questions but if you have any they are relying on a third party to give them some sort of document that says this building complies okay whether that's a hers rater or whatever that code official considers a qualified third party which is basically what the code says um, to tell him that yes, this works. For the larger commercial buildings, you know, you're getting into the you know the ASHRAE modeling, the 90.1 or whatever it is, 91, 91, 90.1, 90.1. Yeah. Um, 
you know, who who's going to pull that apart and look at all the inputs in there? You know, they're just looking at the bottom line. Does this building comply? And they want a document that says that. So that's basically how it's done. But the authority having jurisdiction interprets the code differently from one town to the next. And Gayathri helped me, uh, I guess, in the fall work through an issue that one of our projects was having. So four-story multifamily building, the development actually has four buildings on it. Our project, we are sampling the final testing because we are we're allowed to implement sam sampling protocol. Where which, you don't test every single where unit. Where you don't test every single unit, but you capture the unit types with your sample set. And maybe you end up testing, you know, 25 out of 120 units in a building, apartments in a building. Right in, in the next jurisdiction, but across the line, was a building where the inspector said that you have to test every single one of the 120 units. I want a blower door result for every apartment. And so the team that we were working with went into panic mode and said, why do you think that you can do it this way when they have to do 121, 120 blower doors? Well, we were using the energy rating index pathway for compliance in the code, which also refers back to the sampling protocol. So guy three quickly dug through all of the you know standards and items for me. We put it into exactly what Bill said. A little memo that said, you know, this is why we're doing it. This is how we're doing it. And this meets code. And so it happens that the team we're working with can avoid all of that extra cost, sequencing issues, hold up of turning over buildings by not having to test every single, do a blow door in every apartment. Okay. I think given how groundbreaking the new Massachusetts code is, um, I think what we can expect is that, um, you know, there will be probably a a period of time where there's maybe subcontractors or sub consultants or third parties reviewing or you know helping code reviewers out because code reviewers aren't going to know really what they're looking at if they get a passive house modeling report is it as simple as as long as there's only green checks and no red x's you're fine <laughs> i mean maybe but it gets really complicated fast cuz not to get too into the weeds but sometimes there's a red X, but you actually do comply because it's on a different sheet or something. Like there's there's lots of nuances to passive house in particular that that um, can be confusing for someone that you know is really just used to reviewing the business as usual code stuff. So I, I think we can probably expect something like that where there are third parties at least helping kind of get code reviewers through the the initial phase of enforcement with the Massachusetts code in particular, but on it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out on the state's dime or is that all to be determined? Uh, I don't get paid enough to answer that question. <laughs> I bet you it's going to be team code consultants. Okay. So the bigger, bigger projects have code consultants on board anyway, and they're kind of looking to their third party verifiers, their passive house or um, asking these questions. But to Dylan's point, so Massachusetts adopted the 2021 and when you look at the map of who's adopted the stretch code or the amendments that became the stretch code of Massachusetts, the map is covered. There are very, very few places that have not adopted. And then that specialized opt-in code, last I looked, it was 16 um, municipalities yeah. or communities. Greater Boston, essentially. It's Greater Boston, essentially, yes, that have adopted that specialized opt-in code, which is basically zero energy yeah. that you must okay. meet. So some good stuff going on, but it's pushing. It's pushing things, pushing the limits. 
And I was just going to say, that's definitely a valid concern. On the consensus committee, we do have 16 code officials, and often they will say that the code's getting too complicated. I don't have a solution for this, but the problem is this is one book. It's an energy code, International Energy Conservation Code. It has to work for Maine. It has to work for Maryland. It has to work for every state. And so it is hard to make it both simple and rigorous and progressive at the same time. And so, you know, there's jurisdictions that also have very few new constructions. So I was talking to a code official in Maryland where it's primarily alterations, additions. It's a homeowner. They don't even have a HERS rater or a passive house consultant that's going to be delivering any paperwork. They're just doing the best that they can. So they can't even always leverage that third-party person, which is a great great solution in some of the cases where it's new construction. But they're seeing way more alterations. It's a homeowner working with their contractor, just trying to meet code. Uh, So no solution, but it does need to be simpler. Otherwise, it won't get enforced. But it's also, it's kind of like speed limits. You have to still have the speed limit rule. You don't. It's somebody else's job to make sure it gets enforced, and good luck to them. How, how is the International Energy Conservation Code international? Uh, because the first letter is I. <laughs> Very good. It's like the World Series with one Canadian team. Okay. So my topic, um, something I also don't have a solution for, is I think most of us in this room have been talking about decarbonization, Um, And one of the components of getting to decarbonization is electrification of our buildings. And so my question topic is how are we going to accomplish that within the context of energy codes? Uh, Only because we've been seeing a lot of pushback on any jurisdictions that try to ban the use of gas. Um, There's lawsuits out there um, that are pending. Is it any kinds of fuels or is it really just gas or it's the gas? I think most, mostly it's been gas bans. We've heard gas bans, moratoriums, different jurisdictions have attempted this. So what's happened recently in California is that um, there's been a ruling that they cannot ban gas. And so what's happening is when you make these kinds of rulings, you're inviting all these lawsuits. And so if, if those are going to be successful, are we setting up jurisdictions for failure if we try to put electrification into the energy code? And so you know our task on the consensus committee was to build a net zero energy carbon code by 2030. Which, which, it's important. It's an important distinction, I, isn't it? I put it? a slash there and I was just going to gloss over it because we don't know how <laughs> that's going to be defined. But either way, it's going to involve some component of electrification. And so if we, if that's our chore, if that's what we have to do by 2030, but we can't ban gas in the main body of the code, um, I'm not exactly sure how we're going to get to that goal in 2030. So... Who, who charged, who, where did this charge come from, net zero by 2030? So the ICC, when they put out the call for applications to participate in this consensus committee, they had put out a document that said, we are leading the way to zero. Um, and so they had established that that was the goal, 2030. So I don't know where within so ICC International that came from. Code Council yep. decided, okay. Exactly. So that that's the mission that we've been given. And so. zero isn't? necessarily defined so far right now we have an appendix right so all these optional appendices we have one that is net zero energy so right now that one is just energy site that one is ambiguous i don't know (laughs) if that's site. that's that's using the eri so see now we're getting into complicated questions again Um, because the energy rating index is not necessarily site or source or cost it's a a load base yes exactly so i can't say whether it's zero but that appendix uses that um 
But yeah, I don't know how we're going to get there if we can't. So in the 2024 ICC that's going to come out next year, there is no ban on gas. So proposals were made to say, hey, we want this code to be all electric. And those failed. And so what we offered was an optional appendix. So jurisdiction that's ready to go all electric, they have an appendix. But the main body, we, we got a lot of resistance. So it's not in the main body of the code, which means it's not a mandate, not a code requirement. Um, so the next best thing we could do was electric readiness. So how do we at least put in mandates that builders put in electric readiness? You know, if you're putting in a gas dryer or a gas stove, at least put the infrastructure behind the wall that, you know, the homeowner could eventually switch. So that's kind of the best we could do. Um, but the big question for this group, I guess, is um, how are we going to electrify if we can't tell people they can't use gas anymore? We had to do something else. Via the code, I guess. Via the code. Or maybe, maybe it, it can no longer be handled by the code. So ultimately, if it can't be the code, it's got to be somebody else. But um, we're still tasked with producing a net zero code by 2030. Well, the interesting thing is, as Bill mentioned, yes, it was a great idea to do blower door testing on, you know, and to get it into code. It's a good idea, but do we have the infrastructure and what's going to push it? And the electrification component is being pushed by programs. And it's also being pushed by incentives. So Connecticut Connecticut has the residential new construction um, program incentive. And if you're not all electric um, and permitting after July of this year, you don't qualify for the incentive. So first they're incentivizing electric buildings right now. And then they're saying, and then, oh, by the way, there is no incentive for you if you're not an all electric building as of July. Um, and so that's one way to do it because as we start to incentivize, we see change. We, we also have this with the Inflation Reduction Act and 45L. 45L right now aligns with Energy Star and the DOE Zero Energy Ready Homes. And we know Energy Star is evolving from version 3.1 to version 3.2. There's a next-gen Energy Star, which is very much focused on all electric. So, I mean, typically it's a push-pull with the code, but the programs seem to push the code more than the code pushes the programs. The pro- i got to think about that. The programs seem... To push the code. Oh, so, so maybe the programs pull the code along. Okay. All right. Okay. I mean, you could say that about Massachusetts and Passive House. I think Go ahead, say it. The, I just said it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll elaborate. Uh, <laughs> I think uh, Passive House grew a lot in five years, and Massachusetts said, "All right, it can clearly be done for a premium that is tolerable." So. Let's see if we sh- can actually like start to require this in multifamily. And they said, yeah, we can. All right. I'd like to make two points. <clears throat> <laughs> Please. I, in fact, I'm going to make three points. Oh, nice. Whoa. <laughs> uh, I'm going to follow up on, on Dylan's point. Um, and that, yes, Passive House can be done at a tolerable additional cost. Mm. That will factor out in terms of uh, investment on money spent, return on investment, right? On the electrification portion of it, okay, so PassFast does not require electrification. Correct. Okay, that's point number one. Uh, point number two is the only reason we're talking about electrification is because of the advancements in heat pump technology. And the technology is there kind of, sort of. And if you get into larger buildings with more complicated systems, anyone who works on those systems will tell you, yeah, they don't always quite work the way we 
thought they were gonna. And, you know, when you commission them, they use more energy. And this one uses twice as much as we thought. And this one's pretty good. So it's kind of a nascent technology in terms of it being implemented on a, on a large scale. So that's number one. Wait, uh, that was number two. That was number two. That was number two. Okay, that was number two. We're keeping track. I wrote two twice is the problem. Um, number the three. Architect. Right, exactly. I like number two. Okay, <laughs> number three. The benefit of electrification depends on what part of the grid you're plugged into. If I'm plugged into a grid in North Dakota or or Eastern Colorado, I'm 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 plugged my electric car into a coal burning power plant, and I'm not getting a whole lot of carbon benefit by going electric. If I plug my electric car or electric building, since we're talking about buildings, um, into a into a, a the grid um, northern Maine. Um, up on the Canadian border where almost all the electricity is coming from hydro, yippee, go electric. There is no reason not to. I think that when we're looking at the metrics for electrification of buildings, we need to look at the grand scale of the grid, the carbon that the grid is emitting or not, relative to the fuel that we would be replacing it with. Which, that's third. Okay, I want to comment on number two. About heat pump, and then we'll go and to, then we'll come three. Back to three. <laughs> okay. <laughs> heat pump technologies not necessarily being there, and I, you said they're not. I kind of agree with you that they're not there. I think for single family homes, even in cold climates, the technology is there. Single family, low rise, low rise multifamily, and but we know from research we've done, from other people have done, you, you still got to do it right. I mean, you really have to be careful in the design, installation, operation, and maintenance of these systems to get good performance. If you want to know more, go to swa-academy.com. <laughs> you can see my new heat pump course, all talking all about this. But plug, when you plug, get plug. into bigger buildings, VRF systems, uh, air source, air to water heat pumps for domestic hot water and cold climates, I agree that it's, it's, those technologies are not vetted in my, in my opinion. And I, I, it makes me kind of cringe to see them mandated when we have such big questions about how they perform. Yeah. And in terms of making codes more complicated, I did attempt to do something like best practices. How do you install heat pumps or heat pump water heaters? So the code is just requirements. And so when you try to add more language because we have these ideas like how they should be installed to get them to perform like they're rated to perform, even trying to get language like that into the code, which we all agree is a good idea, that was a struggle. I couldn't even get language in there that says we should we should install these correctly so that you know they perform right. And they're like, oh, but that's already required. You have to install by manufacturer's installations. So it's being done. Oh yeah, we see that all the time in the field. <laughs> right. And so I couldn't even get language like yep. that that I thought would be be useful. Um, but I wanted to circle back to Bill's point, I think three A at this point or four. Three um, it's three it's three B. It's three A. <laughs> So in terms of carbon, so that is something exciting that is coming through the energy rating index. So raters are not going to have an option when they calculate their energy rating index or however they model their building in that software. It's also going to produce um, a carbon rating index. And so we have a carbon rating index that does take into account the grid that the home is located in. So it looks at that grid projects forward looking, how are the grid emissions going to be 50 years from now? So it has a whole built-in calculation that says you can build this home, compare it to an all-electric home in that same grid, and determine if you're mixed-fuel building or all-electric building, how does it compare? It's still like an index, so it's still not an EUI or carbon use intensity. It's still using the 
an index approach, but that is available. And so that's available actually right now. And we were able to get it into the code as an optional appendix. So there is an appendix. A jurisdiction is interested in moving towards focusing on carbon instead of site energy or source energy or costs. They can adopt this appendix. It's an overlay. And the writer who was doing an ERI before will just look at their software and it'll, it'll spit out the carbon rating index. And so now there's a pass-fail number for that. And again, it does take into account your local grid. Is that residential only? That is, it's a, it's in the ANSI 301 standard. So anyone who is calculating an energy rating index for a home or apartment, so it's multifamily, so it's residential in the sense that it's single family or multifamily, but okay. any height multifamily, just it doesn't ever apply to commercial. Okay. And that's operational carbon. But what's really exciting is that ResNet has put together a committee to try to define how we want to deal with embodied carbon accounting. And did, to did Carla look, just change the topic? I think that's an excellent segue I, Carla, to her Carla question. Carla really trying to move into her, <laughs> her I'm going to talk about embodied carbon, everyone. <laughs> um, yeah, and to, to pair this with the operational carbon accounting. So we're used to that tool that Guy3 mentioned. We're used to an energy rating index or a HERS index. And to be able to have a carbon index is great, but then to be able to also start to quantify the embodied carbon in our buildings is really important. I, I mean, I think it's it's a bit. I think it's a big change to for an en, for an energy code to start mandating what kind of what kind of energy you can use in a building. That's a big change. Codes would have to change and evolve to be something a bit different. And you're that's you're struggling to do that by shifting away from fossil fuels towards electricity for carbon. I, I think it might be an even bigger change to make the shift, develop the energy code to include embodied carbon and materials or a life cycle assessment. I, I mean, that's so dramatically different than what the energy code has been so far. Yes? Yes, or- it, it is dramatically different. And yes, you hit the nail on the head. The complexity of, of code and dictating which fuel you're going to use is probably less controversial than dictating what materials you're going to use, especially when we have some big lobbying outfits. For for one thing, the in- insulation um, industry is is pretty particular about making sure that there's always a place for certain types of insulation in buildings, where we know that the embodied carbon of some types of insulation is much better, lower rather, than the embodied carbon of other insulations, just to pick one material that comes into play. But there are some simple things we can do to make sure that we're not doing things that are better for the energy efficiency on an operational level that hurt us on an embodied carbon level ultimately. So for instance, the, the 2018 IECC says that addicts must have an R49 in them. The 2021 IECC jumps, and this is for climate zones four through eight. The 2021 jumps to an R60. 2024 is in development, and there's a conversation that's now happening. It really is more insulation in the attic better. What are we getting from this? The DOE does a study. They say, well, overall, the jump from the 2021 to the 2024 is about a 7% energy cost savings. Okay, the jump across the board, 2021 to 2024. But that attic insulation from going to an R49 to an R60 is one-third of 1% of a savings. However, you need about 22% more material 
to get from an R49 to an R60. If that material is cellulose, which is a negative embodied carbon or close to, let's say zero even, no implication. Okay, no big deal. What if it's not cellulose? What if it's a combination of spray foam, fiberglass, and you need 22% more? You saved one third of 1% of the energy and you just shot yourself in the foot for the embodied carbon accounting. So some simple considerations like that, um, just knowing that the people who are on the code committee, voting on the code committee, are aware of the embodied carbon accounting issue that we have at hand is making it possible to pause and say, you know, are we doing the right thing by upping the R value? That problem would be solved if we adopted an EUI. Because then it wouldn't be prescriptively you have to use 60. And that one-third of 1% 1 improvement would be negligible in your performance model. And you wouldn't do 100%. It. That was only an example of how much more material it takes to get to a certain value. If you're using an EUI you and you're not taking into account the embodied carbon, you could be using a product that is very high in embodied carbon without even knowing it. So, you know, Passive House was, was really kind of guilty of this several years back. Folks were starting to say, great levels of insulation, make our model work, all good, but is five inches of XPS really what we want to be doing? Passive House is, well, I think it's called PH Ribbon, which is now a tool that you can add to your Passive House projects that will tell you what the embodied carbon of your choices are. And we've got a lot of tools like that, but they need to be easier to use and they need to align properly with the ERI and the carbon rating index. But, but we're seeing more and more and more. It's it's almost, well, it's not rare, but it's it's more and more and more projects. Embodied carbon is mentioned, is a factor, is a consideration. But that's, we're on the leading slash bleeding edge of things, I think, in a lot of our, our projects. I mean, and if we're talking about changing the code, the energy code, God, I mean, it's such, a, I, I think it's such a dramatic shift Yep. That I, I wonder, I mean, but it is being discussed. I mean, Carla said there is at least a group in the ICC. Yep. So basically, I mean, we're overseen by a carbon council. Um, and so in our intent and scope statement, you know, it's greenhouse gas emissions. So it's not just limited to energy anymore. Our scope and intent was intentionally written to say it's not just energy. Um, but in terms of embodied carbon, we actually did have, you know, we have subcommittees that feed into the main committee. And one of them is called Envelope and Embodied Carbon. Because the ICC predicted that we would be, you know, looking at code change proposals to address embodied carbon, but we actually didn't get any. Um, so there is no, you know, at least in the 2024 IECC, there's no embodied carbon, you know, proposal or change. But I think the conversation ended up saying, you know, should it be in the IECC or should it be actually in the IBC, the International Building Code? So I kind of to your point, like, is okay. it really energy or is it really building materials? And so which code should take ownership of the embodied carbon or life cycle assessment? Where does that belong? And it's not even just building materials. It's materials. It's everything. I mean, it's like... It's infrastructure. So does anyone have any idea what the ratio of physical materials into buildings versus other infrastructure is? What buildings? Is this a leading question? I don't have the answer. Oh, it's right. actually a question. Oh, buildings yeah. are blank percent of the, what, operational well, or embodied carbon? Bridges, no, embodied, roads. Yeah. Embodied. Ro roads, roads, bridges, tunnels. Boats. Cars. It's the largest. It's even larger than transportation. No, no. Well, it's large, it is in operational. 
energy use? I think it has an embodied as well. Okay, that's the question I'm asking, but I'm saying it, it, relative to actual infrastructure. So the, so the question is, if we're going to um, track and hopefully lessen the amount of embodied carbon in buildings, why would we not apply that same metric to everything else? Pause. Okay, let's pause. <laughs> but to Bill's point about embodied carbon in materials, it, it, you know, it's not just building materials. It's all materials. And, and I, I'm wondering if building codes are, and this is, I mean, this is pie in the sky, naive, maybe, but I mean, it seemed, wouldn't it make sense to incorporate that elsewhere in the economy, elsewhere in the supply chain? You know, cement is a big, obviously a big carbon thing. If, if there were carbon fees, taxes uh, associated with cement and steel and fiberglass and foam and cellulose, which would be practically nothing. And whether that those materials were used in buildings or used in cars or used in bridges or used in drums, we're sitting in a recording studio. I mean, I don't see... I don't see the political will for any of that happening at this point for building codes or other kind of economy-wide taxes or charges for carbon-based. But I, I just – it makes more sense to me, and I, I, I wonder if building codes are the are the place to – No, I mean, I – we're talking about buildings. We make buildings better, <laughs> and therefore we're focusing on – you know, code and building code and how we can get embodied carbon to be part of the conversation and hopefully part of the metric with regard to performance paths through in the building code. But to answer your kind of question about, wow, we have a bigger picture here that we need to think about. Um, we still have grocery stores that do allow plastic bags and we have some that don't. We have Portland, Maine that said absolutely no styrofoam unless it's to package fish or meat. Otherwise, you cannot have it for takeout. I mean, there is a will somewhere for some of these th things to happen. And so because we know buildings better than we know fish and packaging, I think that's why we're starting with the buildings part of it. Well, yes. But I also think because it's a convenient venue, it already exists. The, the, the energy code, codes, the building codes. The okay. energy code, which requires that you only use X amount of energy, right? So we could require you only use X amount of carbon because we've already got the documents there. We just have to add to them. Now, I'm not saying we should. I'm saying that's part of the logic for doing it. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And then you have the investment arm. So investors are requiring for environmental social governance, ESG requirements, that you're doing, a, that most of their, especially multifamily, is doing a program. So I would say 50% of the projects that I write proposals for are driven because of the investor wanting either LEED or National Green Building Standard. And so that's the, the also- The investor meaning, who, who exactly the, do you The mean? investor of the development, the one, the money, the money people. The money people need to, I hate to say, the, take the a lender, box. The lender to the uh, developer? Yeah, the lender or part owner, depending okay. how the investment is, you know, how it's transpiring. They have to check a box related to sustainability. Especially or... European investors. They oh. have regulations that require them to report ESG. Okay. And part of that is, if you're going to build something, is it going to be better than code or better than it could be? Therefore, a lead building 
is better than code. A national green building standard is better than code. Passive house is better than code. So to Bill's point, it's a vehicle for addressing, you know, greenhouse gas emissions in general, be they operational carbon, embodied carbon, et cetera. Anything related to buildings? And we'll let the auto industry do something else about embodied carbon. For well, no, if Gayatri has her way, every building <laughs> will have enough EV charging so that all of those electric vehicles that are being built will have a place to charge. We haven't even talked about this, but I'm going to have to, I have to bring it up. EV charging in the energy code. We have we have some very strong opinions in the room. Um, Guy three, what do you think about <laughs> EV charging being mandated by energy codes? So I can say I definitely voted for proposals that introduced EV charging requirements into the 2024 energy code. So I have no objection to them being in the code. Um, electric vehicles, I have an electric vehicle. Carla has an electric vehicle. Um Nobody else is saying anything. Well, I wish that I wish that when my house was built, unfortunately that was 1933, so this wasn't going to happen. But when my house was built, there was infrastructure for EV charging because the cost for me now to tunnel over to the garage is cost prohibitive. So we actually had to put the outlet on the side of our house, which is not ideal. Um, fortunately, we were able to do it. wasn't that expensive, but... You know, if the infrastructure is there for all of these things, be it heat pump, water heaters, or EV charging, if you don't have the piece of equipment now, but you can plug and play it later because there's infrastructure there, I think that that's also a role that code can play. Yeah, and the code requirement doesn't mandate. So what we put forward in the 2024 isn't a mandate to include the charging station. So a single family home can just do something that makes it capable for a future installation. So we recognized, we heard feedback that it was too cost prohibitive to actually require, mandate the actual charging station. So it just has to be capable of a future installation. And for multifamily, you know, we had to reach consensus on this. So initial proposals was that you need to provide capability for 100% of the dwelling units or 100% of the, the parking spaces. And that was deemed to be too expensive and onerous for multifamily owners. So we worked it backwards to just 40% of the units. And again, it's not infrastructure, or it, it's just the capability for future stations to be installed. What do you mean by capability? Conduits. Okay, literally like, conduits. And, literally and physical just conduits. capable of... And service size, right? Yes. And okay, size yeah. it's... That's the 800-pound gorilla is the service size. Um, I'm going to ask a question that, that I'm pretty sure Gayathri has the answer to, and that is, what is the amp capacity of your fast charger? 30 amps. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Okay. it's gonna, it, It'll be about 30 or 40 amps, yeah. I have a so, level two. Can I answer it in a different way? I have a level two charger. Which is a fast charger. Yep. Yeah. It, yeah, not a DC fast charger, just a level two charger. Yeah. When it's running, it's running at about eight kilowatts. Okay, I don't care about kilowatts. Well, you brought up amps. I care about amps. Um, the reason I say that is because we were talking about mandating electrification of buildings and houses, right? So if I'm having nothing but electricity coming into my house to fuel my heating, cooling, hot water, cooking, car, whatever, 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 you're starting to climb up above 200 amps. That starts to get really, really expensive. And even if I have a conduit that's going from point A to point B, the the size of the cable that has to go through that conduit, um, you know, to carry the the amperage necessary, is a pretty expensive cost 
I for that single family home. I, and new, wait, wait, wait. When you get into the multifamily, if you're talking about requiring 40% of the spaces to have a, a charging capability, add up that amps and then put that on top of the multifamily building service entrance. And that's a big number. And that's expensive. Multifamily, I think you may have a stronger point. Single family, I have never seen, you know, reasonably sized single family homes, you know, 3,000 square feet or less, built new single family homes, reasonably efficient, code compliant, all electric, need more than 200 amps. I don't think that that's... Including car chargers. Including car chargers. Yeah. I haven't seen that be an issue. If you're, yeah, if you have an old leaky farmhouse and you're trying to fully electrify it and you need five, five ton heat pumps scattered around the whole thing, then (laughs) that's, we're talking about something else, I think, but, or if you have a welding business on the side, but multifamily might, might, might be a, a, a bigger deal, but we started talking about EVs. We're talking about embodied carbon and I'm not, we're not going to talk about transportation, but the charging infrastructure is different than the embodied, embodied carbon question but it sounds like it's too big a lift to try to do anything supply chain wide so we have an end to how building codes and energy codes are made so let's try and do what we can on that front is that yeah, a decent summary i think that's fair and programs we've seen programs demand ervs that are smaller capacity that have different port Opportunities, so maybe not just vertical ports, but horizontal ports. And we've seen manufacturers create those when a multifamily builder said, this is what I need for my 400-unit building. So I think we will see insulation, cement, as you mentioned, concrete, steel. We'll definitely see some of those products get more creative as the demand increases. As as the demand for carbon accounting increases? Correct. Embodied carbon accounting. Has, has anybody tried to mandate yeah, they have. Well, so again, we go back to the Boston area, Greater Boston. Boston and Cambridge have had their own articles for several years that have required LEED certification. And they also are requiring an embodied carbon accounting analysis if you're doing uh, for permitting and special permitting. The point being that we are seeing um, initiatives that We'll hold up permitting. And I've had a project that the permitting was held up because they didn't get their green building report, part of which is an embodied carbon analysis uh, approved. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Was that a special permitting? Special permitting. Because that, that's basically a zoning gimme, right? I mean, you got you to do that to get extra units or something. I'm not sure about that. You cannot get a permit in Boston or Cambridge without going through their Article 19 or Article 37. And both of them have a component for embodied carbon accounting. Okay. The, um, I'm going to forget the ac- what the acronyms stand for, but the inter- Intergreen Agency or whatever, Boston's um, BPCA. BPDA? Cut all, cut all that out, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the review process is rigorous and they will stop and stall you if you're not doing a good job with the accounting, and it includes embodied carbon. Okay. This has been pretty interesting. Uh, in 2030, what would you like energy codes to look like in 2030? Uh, is that the year of the IACC cycles, or it actually it is. is 2030? It is. Yes. Right, every well three done. years. So 2024, 2030. <laughs> yeah, that was in- intentional. Did you do that purpose? 
Yes. By the way, eight kilowatts, two of forty volts, thirty-three amps. So you'll need a forty amp. Uh, See, circuit. I said that. What you... <laughs> Science. Roll it back, Dylan. Take a look. <laughs> I think I have fifty. Amps. All I want to know is <laughs> when are we going to be able to charge a car with lightning bolts? You know, it's like it's like hitting the lottery if, if your lightning bolt that strikes That was in Back your... to the Future in the 50s. I mean, oh. didn't you see that? Come on. It's been done. I don't watch movies. Dylan, 2030. What do you want to what what do you want to see? What do you want to be talking about? What progress do you th- do you do you hope we have made on the building code front? Or or I'm sorry, energy code front. I want models to be better. <laughs> so I don't know how the I don't really know the code's role in this, but right now someone gets an energy model and they think that's what their building is actually going to use and that's not what it is. And I I don't there's maybe there's a role that code can play in uh helping get energy models to a point where they're better predictors of actual energy use because it does really confuse an already confusing topic and part of the industry. So at the end of the day, one of my things I'm really passionate about is I, I just want to know, I, I'd love for me to model something in a way that it's actually predicting the building's use. The second I have to do things that I know are not accurate, it just like makes me feel weird inside in a bad way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I hope that things progress to the point where we're able to do an energy model, and maybe that energy model is required by code, but it's relative to what the building's actually going to use. Because yep. the second we get away from that, we're not living in the reality of the building's actual performance. And I, I, I'd love to see that world, but it's yeah. that's a really tall order. Carla. 2030? 2030. Oh, we have a carbon rating index or a carbon use intensity so that we're life cycle embodied s- embodied carbon so okay. that we're talking about operational and embodied carbon in the same conversation in a similar metric across the board everybody can understand no more zero energy net zero energy zero carbon net zero carbon blah 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 we need something with that addresses embodied carbon with operational carbon cool bill several years ago <laughs> I made Everybody a pred- get, get comfortable, <laughs> all right? <laughs> I made a prediction that the IECC would actually be called the Intergalactic Energy Conservation Code, <laughs> and that guy I threw would be the primary author. I'm not sure that's going to hold up, maybe, but what I would like to see is a more simplified, universal energy use per occupied space metric be available that is easy to use well-backed up, and as Dylan points out, has very credible modeling behind it. Guy 3 Bill usually pronounces your name right. I know. Thank you for correcting and pointing <laughs> out that he said it wrong. Awkward silence. Um, so I'm hoping we, at the consensus committee, I hope we fulfill our obligation, which is to produce a, a zero energy code by 2030, although Carla does not want it to be zero energy. It could be zero carbon or using that metric the carbon use intensity, whatever it is. But I want us to get there. And so whatever that means, that's what I want to see in 2030. Fulfill your mandate. My destiny. Or Gayathri's. <laughs> Whoever she is. Gayathri of the galaxy. I just use the pronunciation that's in your email. <laughs> the phonetic? Yeah. Say my name one more time. 
Oh, you got Dalton. nervous. In there you see that. You said it right. Roll back the tape. You'll see that. All right. Thanks. That's a wrap. Thank you. I definitely learned a lot from this conversation, but probably came away with even more questions, which is sometimes the way it works. Uh, Guy3 asked me to clarify that there is an EUI option in the IECC, but it's still compared to a reference house with the same geometry, etc. So it's not getting at what Bill was trying to get at. Buildings and Beyond is produced by Stephen Winter Associates. We make buildings better. Check us out at swinter.com, swinter.com. Thanks again to Bill, Carla, Gayathri, uh, and especially Dylan for recording and editing as well as participating. Uh, and thanks to Alex Mirable and Trisha Carr on the podcast team for really making the whole thing happen. And thank you for listening. <laughs>